we have two readings today. The first is from Psalm 13. Um, and if you'd like a Bible to follow along with, we've got some just on the tables at the back, so feel free to go grab one. Okay. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Our second reading is from the book of John, uh, chapter 20, and it's verse 24 to 31. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. All right, all right, all right. How are we doing this morning? Nobody got my Matthew McConaughey impersonation. That's all right. Yes, it's a, it's a little something I thought I should learn for myself. One of life's greatest skills is to do an impression, but that's all right. How are we feeling this morning? Confused. Good. I like making people confused. Um, well, before we begin, before we dive into God's Word, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your disciple, John. We thank you for the words that he's pen down for all who seek after you, all who desire to to know you and to love you and to to be with you, that we have access to you through John's words. And so as we as we look at this passage, may your words bring new life, breathe new life into our lives, that it may transform us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the late Mother Teresa, once a towering figure in the Christian world, are still known pretty well today as one of the most iconic and influential Christian figures of the 21st century. Her reputation as a missionary nun in India 
undoubtedly recognized her as a true, faithful, and devoted servant of God. Yet, a little unknown fact about her came to surface 10 years after she died in 1997. You see, for 40 years, Mother Teresa had corresponded with her spiritual mentor in Rome. Uh, and in her correspondent letters, a very shocking detail about her was revealed. Mother Teresa, in these letters, had admitted very strong doubts in the existence of God. Weeks before receiving the Nobel Peace Prize Award, she writes to her mentor in one of her letters, Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer, but does not speak. Uh, in another letter she writes, I am told God loves me. And yet the reality of the darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Did I make a mistake in surrendering blindly to the call of the Sacred Heart? Uh, that, that's some pretty dark stuff, isn't it? But I think it raises a very important question. One I suspect that all of us at some point in our lives would have asked. Can you be a Christian and still have doubts? Now, some of you may be thinking, come on, Wayne, that's like a really big oxymoron. It's like going to the coffee shop and ordering for a large, flat white coffee without asking for milk in it, right? Unchristians supposed to be people of faith with absolutely no doubts at all. And I think most people will have two responses to these, two extreme ways of responding. On the one hand, there is the one response that says, oh, well, you know, there's, there's just so much doubt, so much skepticism in Christianity, it's unlikely to be true. And so they do nothing about it. Then there is the second response, usually amongst Christians, that says, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to have any doubts about my faith. I don't want to deal with any skepticisms I have. I am just going to focus on believing, and I'm never ever going to address my doubts, because a person of faith is to be someone with absolutely no doubts. Now, I, I like to suggest that, in fact, that it's actually good to have doubts. That to be a healthy Christian is, in fact, to have some doubts. Uh, listen to this quote from Tim Keller, our favorite Reformed American pastor. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she or he has failed over the years to listen to his or her own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbours. 
You see, I believe that doubt, to a healthy extent, is actually God's way of helping us exercise our minds, our hearts and our souls, so that we do not become stale in what we believe. The problem with doubt, however, is that if left unchecked or unresolved for too long, can eventually grow into bitterness, anger and distrust. So, what are we then to do with our doubts? Well, in our passage reading today in John 20, I think there are actually three things, again, three things we can learn uh, through Thomas about dealing with our doubts and skepticisms. And the three things are, one, we should be open to learn. Two, we should rediscover who Jesus is. And three, God actually gives us resources to tap into. Uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been going through the Gospel of John, tracking through Jesus' last few days before his death on the cross. We've seen last week how Jesus' death on the cross and his return from the dead have huge implications for our lives. So the story continues. His disciples have gathered together in the locked room, fearing the Jews. But then, suddenly and miraculously, Jesus appears before them and he greets them in the room. Now, uh, it so happens that one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, wasn't in the room when this happened. So the other disciples who were in the room decide to fill him in on what they saw the week after. Unfortunately, for Thomas, being a skeptic, he wasn't going to buy into that story so easily. So in verse 25, Thomas comes across as being very, as a, as, as a, as a very hard-nosed skeptic. Verse 25 says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now you may think, well, yeah, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty rational, reasonable response from Thomas, right? If you were going to believe that someone has just returned from the dead, you naturally you would assume that uh, you would rely on physical evidence. You would want to see for yourself this person who has claimed to have risen from the dead. Um, however, you see, earlier in the book of John, Thomas was also described to be a very hard-nosed skeptic. Uh, if you remember earlier in the book of John, Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he brings his disciples along with him um, to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so chapter 11 of John, verse 16, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 16, then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, oh, let us also go that we may die with him. Right? Thomas was being very sarcastic in his remarks because he didn't believe that Jesus could, could raise Lazarus from the dead. It was unthinkable, unbelievable. And then what happens later on? We know that later on in the story, Jesus does raise Lazarus from the dead in front of Thomas. So you think, 
someone like Thomas, who had witnessed what Jesus had done in Lazarus, would maybe perhaps have a little bit more sympathy, uh, just a tiny bit more belief. But nothing has changed for him. He has not budged one bit. It's not to say that, you know, it's not to say that Thomas has to, you know, just completely believe everything that the disciples have said. But rather, it's that he's not changed one bit. He's not moved his heart one bit despite his experience. And that leads to our first point, that we should be open to learn and to change. You see, it's fine to have doubts and be skeptical. But if we are going to be thorough and sure in our beliefs, then we must be open to learn and to change, even if it means to dispel some of our misconceptions about Christianity. As Christians, we need to be open to learn and not be stuck in our own set ways of belief. Uh, in my previous church, I was leading uh, another small group, and I remember there was one night um, we, we got together in, in our small group and we sat around and we, uh, it, it was actually a night where we were sharing uh, some of our struggles together. You know, that's what you usually do in a small group. You share with each other, how's your week been? Uh, is there any struggles that were happening? Um, just so happened that night, we had a very particular theme of sharing. We were wanting to share our deeper struggles, our doubts um, in God in our lives. And there was this girl, um, one of the more feisty ones, shall we say, in the group. Um, she she had been a she came from a background from a Christian family background and had you know grown up as a Christian her whole life uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and then when it came to her turn to share about you know if she had any struggles or doubts uh, recently in her life, she just completely I kid you not she just completely shut down and she said, "No, I don't think it's right for me as a Christian to have any doubts." And she was really strong about that. And so I, I probed her further. I asked her, well, you know, why, why do you think that's the case? And then she answered and she said that all her life she was brought up to believe that to be a Christian, to be a good, faithful disciple of Jesus is to completely shut out any doubts. That it was impossible for her to recognize that to be a disciple that it was alright to be a disciple and yet have some doubts at the same time. Yet the irony in that is that she's never addressed any doubts because she's never addressed any doubts, any questions of her faith in her life. She grew up to be very shallow in her understanding of Jesus. So I think if we are to be sure if we are to be thorough in our beliefs, to have a rich and full picture of who Jesus is, we must be willing to come with an open mind, to leave our comfort zone, our hamster bubble, as it were, and to be shaped, to be transformed, and to learn who Jesus is. Which leads me to our second point. That when we open ourselves up to learn, we will then discover or perhaps rediscover who Jesus truly is. 
addressing our questions and our doubts will then help us to discover a clearer, richer, and fuller picture of who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus invites us to come to him with our doubts and questions. Verse 27 says, Then Jesus, he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And I love what happens here because Jesus is inviting Thomas to draw near to him, to come to him, to reach out and touch. You know the word finger? Uh, it's, it's not a crude word. A uh, finger in Hebrew in the Old Testament is actually uh, a metric term that is used. So what it means is that Jesus is actually suggesting, alluding to Thomas to come to him and to measure him. Jesus is like saying to Thomas, come here, Thomas, come here with your measuring tape and measure me. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, just stand where you are and watch. But Jesus opens himself for all to see. No tricks up his sleeve, just the real, pure deal. Just as Jesus was open to public scrutiny in his life and death, so it is in his resurrection he remains open to scrutiny and criticism. For truth has no need to hide in the shadow of darkness. Which is perhaps why to this day, Jesus remains the most controversial yet pivotal person in human history. Many books, many movies, many conspiracies and theories have been made and ascribed in his name. Mostly either to debunk him or to create fanatical theories about him. And I suppose so much of the world's understanding, so much of our understanding of Jesus is in fact informed by mainstream media and pop culture. But Jesus doesn't want us to rely on pop culture to say who he is. He invites us, like Thomas, to come directly to him and ask the same question that Jesus asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? To which Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so who do we say that Jesus is? Well, for Thomas, it seemed that the mere sight of Jesus is actually enough for him to believe. In fact, he goes back on his very own words. This is like, you know, this is like uh, Donald Trump doing a U-turn on so much of his policies, right? He doesn't even bother to go and put his hands into Jesus' sight, as he said he would. But instead he yells out in verse 28, My Lord and my God. And this is such an important and pivotal verse in this passage because Thomas becomes the first of the disciples to have his beliefs about Jesus completely reformed, completely transformed. Because Jesus is no longer just the Christ. He's no longer just the Son of God, but He is God. Thomas is rediscovering who Jesus is. He is discovering that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, is the God of the Israelites. 
And he rediscovers who Jesus is only because Jesus in his resurrection breaks all earthly perceptions of who he is. Now you may be thinking, well, you know, good on Thomas for for getting his mind blown. But what about us today? Doesn't that make it pretty unfair for us living in the 21st century? We've never seen, we don't have hard physical evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead. How are we supposed to believe when we don't get the same benefits that the disciples had? Well, here I'd like to suggest a third point, and that is that God actually gives us resources to, to build our faith. And again, another three sub-points in this third point is that I think God gives us three resources. One, He gives us the Holy Spirit. Two, He gives us shared collective testimonies. And three, He gives us the written word. Three resources to build our faith. So number one, the resource of His Holy Spirit. Now, um, this point is not as clear from the passage, but I think it is the most important resource of all. Uh, In verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have seen, have not seen, and yet have believed. Jesus is making a very simple point here in verse 29. He's making a rhetorical statement that while it is perfectly fine to assume belief through physical evidence, The ultimate Christian belief is not driven by what we see, but what Jesus has gifted to us through the Spirit. True belief and faith in Jesus is not based on sight, but is based by His Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit? Well, John actually shows us through Jesus' own words earlier in chapter 14 who this Holy Spirit is. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 26 to 27, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples just before he's arrested. Um, And he speaks to the disciples just as before he leaves. He says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus gives to us his Holy Spirit, who in his absence will teach us, remind us, and help us in all that Jesus has taught his disciples. Like a fuel to a car engine, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit fuels us. It animates us and our hearts so that we can say we are not alone in this world, but that God, Jesus, is with us. Now, does that mean we will never have doubts? No, of course, we will still face many doubts in our lives. But in the midst of our doubts, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is there with us to teach us and remind us all that He is 
the Holy Spirit changes the way we live our lives. The Holy Spirit gives us direct access to Jesus, even though we remain physically apart from Him. The Holy Spirit radically transforms the way we view our doubts and our skepticisms. Uh, the second resource that Jesus gives us, God gives us, is our shared collective testimonies. Verse 30, John explains that Jesus' work and ministry didn't just happen uh, in a close private room. It didn't just happen you know, on, a, on a private YouTube channel. But it opened, but it, his, his, his ministry and his work was done in the open where many of his disciples can testify to the things he has done. Uh, verse 30 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. What this means to say is that the works of Jesus, not only are they many, not only are they public, but that they can be attested to not just by one person, but by a crowd, by a multitude of people. It means that the Christian faith is a collective faith, in that no one person has an ultimatum revelation from God, but that God has revealed Himself to each and every one of us through Jesus Christ. And this is why we encourage sharing in our missional communities. This is why we have everyday people in our gatherings. Because we collectively embrace what Jesus is doing in each and every one of our lives. When we are doubting privately of God's own presence in our lives, we can draw on what God does in our friends, in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Rejoicing and knowing that He indeed is at work in His church and in His body. That He hears our prayers and answers them. Friends, the Christian faith isn't an individualistic faith. It isn't a faith where we take it back into our bedrooms. Sure, we can do that, but it's so much more than that. The Christian faith is a body. It is a family of believers sharing our experiences together. The third resource that Jesus gives us is His written word. Uh, in verse 30 again, John highlights that what is written is specifically, strategically, and purposefully chosen. Not, not just for the sake of um, proving Jesus' materials, but chosen that we may fully understand who Jesus really is. That He is the Son of God. He is the great I Am, the Son of Man. Verse 30 says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You see, the written word, the Bible, shows us a definite, a sure image of who Jesus is. You know, the Bible isn't just a, um, it isn't just a resume or a, 
cover letter of Jesus's accomplishments as if he had to apply for a job. Uh, it's, it isn't even just a, a, a collection of historical facts about him, but rather it is an autobiography of Jesus. Now, autobiographies, yes, they do contain facts. They do contain historical, historically accurate facts, but they do much more than that. You see, autobiographies, what they are interested in doing is to paint for us a picture, a portrait of Jesus, depicting his heart and soul, showing to us not just a messy strings of facts or interpretations or collection of data, but a well-thought-out, accurate characterization of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what he will do in the future. So three resources that God gives us. His Holy Spirit, our shared collective testimonies, and His written word. And so in conclusion, uh, wherever you may be in your faith, perhaps you're here seeking some deeper meaning in life, perhaps you've been a Christian just a couple of months, or perhaps you've been a Christian your whole life. God does not leave us to solve our doubts and our skepticisms on our own. I think all too often people just assume that in order to come to church, in order to to have a relationship with God, I have to somehow deal with everything in my life first. I have to deal with all my doubts, all my skepticisms, all the mess in my life before I I can come to God and Jesus. And very often in that process of bottling ourselves up, we, we burn ourselves, we grow bitter, we grow angry, and we grow tired. But God has given us reliable resources that we can tap into. That while in our private moments of despair, in our seasons of doubt and anguish, He has gifted His Holy Spirit, His community, and his written word to be with us, for us, so that in our struggles, we can still be reminded who God is and who he is revealed to us in Jesus. Uh, I've lived overseas, coming up to Nias, um, away from my hometown in Singapore. Yeah, it's been nine years high. I actually had to count the other day how long I've, I've, I've been in Australia. Um, and I've realized the other day that as time goes on, as I've lived overseas um, longer and longer, my memories of my family and my parents uh, seem to be not quite as accurate as it once used to be. Do you ever get that? Well, if you, I mean, if you live away from home for a very long time. I, I, I still, you know, I still have, a, you know, I'd say maybe 80 to 90 percent fairly accurate uh, memory of my parents. Um, but it's just the little things, you know, like just just things that I, 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 I tend to forget, like what it's like, you know, to hear my dad's voice in the morning, um, what it's like to hear him dragging his thongs through the hallway, 
how annoying he is by waking us up at six o'clock in the morning by blasting the radio. Yeah. Um, how he smells like, you know, it's just little things like that. Um, how my mom gets so frustrated after watching his, watching her favorite Korean drama series. Um, you, you forget these things, you know, the small things. Um, and my sister came, uh, moved over to Melbourne as well four years ago, and she started living with us four years ago. And I realized that um, quite recently, uh, when we have our, our our regular dinners together, quite often we would actually um, we're actually quite good at doing impressions of our parents. Uh, I, I think I do a fairly good. I'm probably the best impersonator of my dad, and my mom probably is. Uh, sorry, my my sister probably is uh, the best impersonator of my mom. And you know, we just sometimes we drift into. Um, just doing these impressions over dinner over the dinner table of um, our parents, and uh, sometimes we also hypothetically try to think, oh, what would that be like in this situation if it was here? Oh, what would mom say uh, if she found out about this? And yeah, I think we do a fairly good impressions. And as we um, as we got more and more into doing impressions of our parents to each other, I started to realize that, you know. These memories do come back. I I, I do remember um, what it feels like to have mom and dad around. Um, my point is that it's only because of our shared memories as brothers and sisters in our family do we actually remind each other of who our parents are. But we can only do that. We can only remind each other of who our parents are only because we are their children. We've spent all our lives with them. We know the ins and outs of a mom and dad so well that we can Im do impersonations and impressions on them. And wouldn't that be great if church was like that? That if our community was a family that impersonates and do impressions of God and Jesus to each other. What would Jesus say in our lives to each other? What would Jesus want of us as a family? And that can only happen if we tap into his resources. If we are transformed by his Holy Spirit. We are transformed by his word. Only then can we speak real gospel saturated truth to each other. Our collective experience of God in our lives as a community gives us assurance that God is indeed working and present amongst His people. His written word is given to us so that we may never forget God's face through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then, one day, as our bodies decay, as our time on earth ends, all of us will take that glorious flight back home to where our true Father in heaven belongs. And then, as we pass through the immigration gates of the arrival hall, we will see our Father waiting there to pick us up. We will stand there face to face 
with him. And at that moment, all our doubts, all our skepticisms, and all our troubles will be no more. Amen.